early 2022. Um, so the purchase price was $200,000. Um, it was over in Lithonia. And um, after conversion, it's an eight bed, two bath. They bought the house with a traditional loan, 15% down. Bought the house, turned around, Mardon renovated it. The renovation cost was right around 30K. So you're about 30K in for the house, 30K for the renovations, taking closing costs called 65. Um, and then you're up and running. When you do that model, one of the pros is also that it's not going to take that long. You're buying a house that's already in good shape. The timeline, I mean, everybody has, every investor has a horror story of a house they thought was going to take two months, it took six or eight. You do this approach, it's a little less likely to run into delays like that. So they're up and running in you know, two months um, as an eight bed, two bath. And at that point, I actually reached out to him because I was kind of curious to keep tabs on you know, my friend's houses to make sure they're actually going well. So he said uh, year one, they cash flowed right around 17 grand. So cash on cash returns right around 25%. Like some of the areas in Metro Atlanta that I really like are College Park, anything kind of in the Southwest quadrant of the city. We have a ton of success on the Northeast side in Gwinnett County, Stone Mountain, and then on the Southeast side, sorry, yeah, Southeast side Decatur also is very strong. Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, we got some special guests for you guys today. We got uh, Blake Lewis, who is an OG, one of the first employees at Passplit. And then we got a super like experienced real estate investor in Tyler, who is a VP of construction. And he's going to walk us through all things renovation. How do you look at a pad split? How do you look at a property and look at the different opportunities in there? Like these are going to be experts that you're going to want to follow and you're going to want to listen to for this entire conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to bring them on. So Blake, why don't you introduce yourself first, ladies first, and then we'll have Tyler tell his story about how you guys also got started in real estate and pad split. Sure thing. Thank you. Uh, I'm stoked to be here. So my name is Blake Lewis. I'm the senior account executive here at PadSplit. I was lucky enough to start at the company a little over four years ago when we were really teeny tiny and only in Metro Atlanta. Um, I have a huge passion for real estate and also want to leave the world better than I found it. And PadSplit is kind of my home to make that happen. Nice. All right, Tyler, how about yourself, man? Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, you know, I've been in construction for coming up on a decade now from Raleigh, North Carolina originally. Uh, moved to Atlanta. It'll be nine years this October. Um, so we're for Mardon Construction. We're a full turnkey general contractor, mainly focused in the SFR space. So we work for different groups. You know, they buy the houses, we renovate them, they rent them out. Um, going back to 2019 was when I was first introduced to Passflip. Um an agent we know introduced us. Passport was you know, getting off the ground. and needed a contractor that could you know, take on volume and really grow that side and have somebody they could refer to regularly. Um, so I think that was like March 2019. Um, we started you know, meeting at houses. We we're going to refer to different people you know, looking to convert. Um, it was a little bit of a learning experience at first. Um, you know, Passport is a unique concept. Um, so you know, over the years, there are some pitfalls there, but, you know, we've been doing it for about four years now. We've renovated, I looked it up before, it's about 275 over the last four years. So there's been a lot, um, a lot of knowledge gained in that department. Uh, we've worked for numerous different investors, both in-state, out-of-state, big and small. Um, 
but we've had one in particular that we've done a lot with, but we've also done plenty of people that have one to, you know, single digits. Um, so that was in 2019. We started doing that. Um, later in 2019, you know, like we had done, I don't know, 10 or 15 or so. And I'm a, I'm a kind of smart guy. I like to be around other smart people and the people that are buying the houses seem to like them a lot. So I thought I'd look into it a little bit more myself. <laughs> and at that point, it's October, 2019, me and my brother decided to buy our first one. Um, so we're in Stone Mountain, nice eight bed, two bath. Um, so we got that up and running October, 2019. Still have it. Um, since then, I've added six others. So I have seven currently. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's become a focus point both as an investor myself and as a contractor. And I'm also an agent who essentially only transacts on paths with deals. So in 2020, when COVID happened, I had a lot more free time. We weren't doing as much work because everybody was shut down. So I decided to go ahead and get my real estate license then, mainly so I can transact on my own deals. Um, that kind of grew into a little bit of a bigger thing where I got linked up with a, you know, a couple of larger investors where, you know, I would transact as the agent, I would source the deals for them, sell them the house, and Mardon would renovate them. And I still do that, you know, in my own houses. I do that for, I have a handful of personal friends that I've all passed with us over time. Like I said, I partner with my brother. Um, so really focused over the years being a turnkey service that can kind of do it all with the construction being really the backbone. Man, you're kind of like a serial entrepreneur almost, man. You you got revenue streams coming from everywhere, dude. You got your construction revenue. You got your realtor revenue. I mean, what do you not do, dude? Oh, my God. Yeah, um, <laughs> you're like, I'm staying away from that one. <laughs> um, so, Tyler, you did over 200 passive renovations. Did I catch that number correctly? Yeah, I've thrown around a lot of numbers and conversations, but I decided to actually look it up this time. So it was right around 275 that we have renovated, and oh, I have yeah. acted as an agent on 110. Yeah, and I and I love that you eventually figured out, like, hey, let me start buying and owning these properties for myself. So maybe let's stay with you for a little bit, Tyler. Let's talk about a recent deal that you bought either with your brother or on your own. Can you just run us through some numbers like purchase price, general renovation, and then eventually let's maybe get into a little bit more nitty gritty details so that our listeners, we have listeners from all over. They can be small mom and pop individual landlords all the way through multifamily, uh, new construction from the ground up. But I think for the newer folks out there, one of the biggest fears is trying to figure out like, well, how on earth am I going to recognize whether or not this is a deal? And that obviously comes from working with people like yourself and Blake. Uh, but maybe let's just start with a story on your end first. Like, tell us about a recent deal that you did. Yeah. So I have the different ones I have, right? And there's always different approaches that people need to take based off their you know, personal situation. Um, I pretty much tell people there's two approaches for the most part, in my opinion or the best approaches are either find a property that is in need of a ton of work. So you're going to fully renovate that house. And in addition to that, make it a bad split. Um, a little bit more room for potentially, you know, surpassing expectations. Have a little bit more money you might be able to pull out of them. But there's also probably a little bit more risk. You know, there's a little bit more unforeseen things that can happen. That is what I do myself because I am, you know, I got the different levers to pull. I'm a contractor agent, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, then the other option, which is what most of my personal friends have done, just because it's a little bit more approachable, especially for a first time. Once again, it depends. If you're a seasoned investor, you're probably going for the fix, fixing them, you know, renovated, blah, blah, blah. If you're first timer, you might want to be a little bit more conservative where um, you find a house that has maybe already been cosmetically renovated or it's in decent shape. It doesn't need a whole lot of work. It's a, you could buy it and a tenant could rent it out next week type house. Um, that has been good for a lot of my friends. So I have one house that I sold a buddy of mine early 2022. Um, so the purchase price was 200,000. Um, it was over in Lithonia. And um, after conversion, it's an eight bed, two bath. They bought the house with a traditional loan, 15% down. Bought the house, turned around, Mardon renovated it. The renovation cost was right around 30K. So you're about 30K in for the house, 30K for the renovations, taking closing costs, call it 65. Um, and then you're up and running. When you do that model, one of the pros is also that it's not going to take that long. You're buying a house that's already in good shape. The timeline, I mean, everybody has, every investor has a horror story of a house they thought was going to take two months, it took six or eight. You do this approach, it's a little less likely to run into delays like that. So they're up and running in you know, two months um, as an eight bed, two bath. And at that point, I actually reached out to him because I was kind of curious to keep tabs on you know, my friend's houses to make sure they're actually going well. So he said uh, year one, they cash flowed right around 17 grand. So cash on cash returns right around 25%. So, I mean, pretty good returns in my mind. It was him and one other buddy. So, you know, they each were out of pocket around 30 grand. Um, you know, it was a good chunk of money, but part, that's what partnering is nice. It's less than 60 grand. Um, so a little less risk there. So I think that model is always the, less room for error, mm -hmm. a little bit more straightforward. If you work with a good agent and contractor where everything is tight and things aren't fluctuating a lot, um, that's a good approach. Man, 17,000, 25% cash in cash, dude. Everybody is looking for deals like that. So this is going to be interesting. I mean, did they have any like pad split, right? Sometimes the people here are like, hey, eight bedrooms, two baths. There must be a lot of wear and tear. Did they have any wear and tear or any big repairs that first year that you heard about? No. Um, so I would say within that 30 grand, it's worth pointing out that I would say 10, 12 grand, maybe we'll call it 15, mm -hmm. was pad split conversion costs. The other 15 grand was things that you would have done if you were buying this house to be a rental property anyways. So you had mm -hmm. to replace the HVAC. That's value being added to the house. That's not, you didn't do that because it passed specifically, you did that because the HVAC was old. Uh, we painted the house. Once again, these are value add things that you're doing it for a pad split, but you would have done it anyways. Um, so we did a good job on the front end as Mardon, like making sure because we've done so many, because I own them myself, trying to find these pitfalls that could happen you know, year one when it comes to the construction. You don't want the, you don't want the big things fail. You don't have HVAC, plumbing, roofing, mm -hmm items coming up um so speaking of their property specifically no they've had very basic wear and tear very basic maintenance so far and it's been about a year and a half now yeah and i bet they were lucky they had a, a buddy helping them with auto renovations right so they had confidence in the renovations first and foremost uh and they actually trusted your numbers so i think the next step i want to bring into is again we talked a little bit about people are so fearful about how to 
estimate renovations and repair costs. Maybe let's just go down the line here. And I know it's going to depend. All right. It depends on the square footage, construction right. of the home. I know we got to do those disclaimers, but I think it will be really helpful to tell folks what the ranges of expenses might look like. So you mentioned for, for that uh, earlier passive conversion, it was like 12 to 15 grand. Maybe do you have a rule of thumb for how much it would might cost to add a room or frame an extra room within a property? Um, you know, a lot, a lot of times people want to know that, right? Like how much is it going to cost me to add mm -hmm. one wall? Um, <laughs> truth is it really fluctuates a lot. Um, mm -hmm. you know, disclaimers and whatnot, but, uh, <laughs> I would say if you were to take a basic house and you're adding a wall or two, mm -hmm. you're converting a living room into a bedroom. I mean, you're spending a few thousand dollars. Um, just for building the wall, you're usually going to have to deal with some sort of electric. Like usually, you know, the living room and dining room are kind of one big room. There's mm -hmm. going to be switches in certain spots with certain lights. You're going to have to kind of typically tinker with that. You'll probably have to tinker with the HVAC a little bit maybe. Maybe one mm -hmm. room doesn't have a supply vent. Well, that's going to be a bedroom now. So now you got to have AC getting to that bedroom where that room previously was using, you know, the supply vent in the dining room that they shared a room with. Um so things like that, I mean, you're looking at a few thousand for that, um, the HVAC that I refer to. And mm -hmm. worth pointing out, we work in Atlanta, Georgia. So these prices that I am mentioning are for yep. Atlanta. Um, I'm loosely familiar with prices in other markets, but they do change a lot. Um, so in Atlanta, to replace for us to go out and replace the unit on a pass bill, you're looking in the mid 5,000 range. So called 5,500. Usually on the pass with houses. Um, because you're adding these bedrooms, like I said, every bedroom has to have a supply. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have to tinker with some ductwork as well. Nine times out of ten, it's very rare that if you're replacing the HVAC, or even if you're not, that you're not going to have to do something to make sure the airflow is working right. Um, I would say, on average, probably an additional twelve hundred bucks there, depending. For the ductwork, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah, for the add-on ductwork slash modifications of existing. Yeah, so for your numbers for uh, the room conversion, we said a couple of grand. Obviously, depends on the structure. Do you do any like soundproofing? Because that's actually one question I got from some of the guests out there. It's like, hey, lots of people. Do you soundproof the walls at all? Have you done anything sort of like customizations like that? We have done it one time. Um, and to be honest, I've never actually followed up since to find out like, Hey, is there any feedback on that? And what we did is we used uh, soundproof insulation in the walls mm. so we saw that between the two walls. Um, other than that, though, like I said, I mean, done a couple hundred, only one time we ever done that mine, my property specifically, I've never heard any complaints of noise. That's good to know. Um, yeah. Usually if it's complaints of noise, it's somebody doing something that soundproofing the wall wasn't going to change you know somebody's blasting music <laughs> blasting music. um yeah yeah most people that i'm aware of aren't doing any sort of soundproofing measures no that's really great um I think other items that we've heard a lot uh, from having other passable executives on on the podcast was like doing garage conversions, bathroom remodels, or adding bathrooms. Could we, could we hit on upon like costs like that? Like, what is a typical garage conversion uh, might cost, and what should people look out for when they're thinking about converting a garage? Typical garage conversion. So, if you're looking at a double garage, say a two car garage, can be around four hundred square feet typically. You comfortably 
can add two bedrooms in there. You could do three. They're all going to be smaller, but usually you're going to be doing two at that point. Um, I would say on average to do all that, everything, you know, got frame out the walls, insulation, get rid of garage doors, put in window units for the second means of egress, flooring, all the fun stuff. Um, you're probably somewhere in the 10 to 15 grand range, depending on yeah. the flooring types and stuff like that. Yeah, and, th and that feels right. How about uh, when you get permits for these garage conversions, right? Do you, what's the timeline looking like? Are you guys seeing a lot of backlog in there? Because I've literally heard horror stories from people in Las Vegas where they're like, yeah, they're still blaming COVID and it's a six month time right now for, for permits. And I was like, whoa, really? Like, yeah, yeah, it just depends. So I'm not sure what you're facing in the Atlanta market, but I want the listeners to know like these things happen and sometimes these are out of control of your contractors. Yeah, so once again, having a contractor that's familiar with the different counties and cities you're working with is always helpful. Um, each one, a little different. You know, each one kind of has their own reputations when it comes to difficulty and timelines and stuff like that. Things in the Atlanta area have gotten better. Um, you know, during COVID and whatnot, it was impossible. Um, now, if you're doing relatively basic, we'll call it, you're not doing an addition on the house, you're not you're not doing anything to the existing footprint. You don't, have to get, you don't have to get a site plan, all that kind of stuff. I usually tell people to factor in an additional month and a half for permitting mm -hmm. and inspection time. Got it. Because you got to get the inspectors out there and they're going to probably find one thing that to come back for. It's just going to add time. Um, but yeah, I would say about a month and a half for the areas in Atlanta. Okay, that's pretty fair. That's that sounds right. It's like usually I hear about at least one to two months at the minimum. So your numbers like make a lot of sense, and I think some some folks might be able to listening to this can pencil down some of these estimated time ranges. Uh, bathrooms. I talked to Blake about this before, but bathrooms come at a premium. So I'm really interested uh, to hear from your perspective. Like, what do prices look like in Atlanta for adding a bathroom, converting a half bath into a full bath? Or just trying to make like a full bath nicer. Do you have general um, prices or estimates for what that might cost? Um, yeah, so that is probably you know, a two-car garage conversion and a two-car car conversion for the most part. It's not a lot of fluctuation there. Bathrooms can fluctuate a lot, you know, depending on what Florida bathroom is, what the layout of the existing house is, um, what kind of finishes you want, stuff like that. I would say a nice rule of thumb would be around 10 grand. Um yeah, plus or minus a little bit, just depending on what you do. But if you're running pencil math at home, I would probably throw 10 grand on there. Um, you feel pretty comfortable that that's going to be around what it'll cost. Yeah. And for folks that didn't know, like I hear this from contractors all the time, you got to make sure you understand, like you, sometimes you got to trench, right. To, to connect any new bathrooms to the drain lines and, and, and the water lines. And that could depend. And that could be expensive really quick, depending on how far you have to connect. Uh, and dig at the same time um awesome how about water heaters what have you guys been doing like i've heard of tankless water heaters for larger groups or just like larger uh, capacity water heaters what have you found to be effective or efficient for the passive model for your renovations so we have tinkered with that a little bit over the years um one First thing is that a lot of people, when they initially buy pads, but they think, oh, I need to get a super large water heater. I'm going to have eight people, whatever. Um, I can't have them running out of hot water. 
But in my personal experience and the houses we've renovated, um, the, you don't actually need a super large water here because of the demographic of renters. Usually these people's schedules are different. Not everybody's working at nine to five. Some people work at night, some people work at morning, some during the day. So everybody's kind of using the bathroom at different times. It's not like everybody is rushing out the door to get to their nine to five and everybody's showering from 7.30 to 8.30 using all the hot water. No, it's it fluctuates a lot. So that's one kind of first, like I guess, myth debunked if you're thinking about it for the first time. Um, secondly, we have done some of the tankless. I did do a hybrid heat pump water heater on one of my properties about a year and a half ago. Um, as kind of like a test study for myself. Um, I personally found that the utility savings weren't really worth the additional cost for me personally. And it's difficult, even with me having seven properties that I can lay out all the utility costs across the board and go, okay, this one is this much a month, this one's this much a month. There's so many different variables for the people living in the house it's really hard to pin down what exactly you're saving because if you go look up the water heater you can you know they have the info for a basic house right you buy it for your regular family home you're going to save x amount of year in utilities and then it might pay itself back eventually the password is a little bit tougher because it's harder to get a handle on the use um so did that for myself did it for a few other people and then kind of just scratched that idea and uh, when we replace water heaters, we just go with a you know basic model. It runs you about fourteen hundred bucks all in, all the day. Now, are these like the fifty-gallon ones or seventy-gallon ones? Electric, gas? Where are they? Well, usually around fifty-gallon, and then whatever, uh, whether it's gas already or electric. Got it. Got it. How about electric? Do you recommend people like upping their, upgrading their electric panels and stuff like that for the pad split model? Um, depends. Uh, I would <laughs> say that oftentimes you're, I want to say oftentimes, but I would say often enough you're going to need to. And it just depends. If you're taking a house, like the example I gave earlier, where it was pretty minimal, we added, um, I think four bedrooms, but it was with all within the existing, like you didn't really have to, we weren't adding a lot of lights. It was pretty much tinkering with the existing. You're not going to upgrade a panel. If you're finishing a garage, all of a sudden that's all new electric being added to the house that wasn't there before. If you're finishing a basement, all new electric. And if it has, you know, the panel is sized for the existing house, it's not sized for this basement you're adding, it's not sized for this garage you're finishing. So you start doing things like that, you're more likely to have to upgrade the panel. And then it just depends on the age of the house. I mean, if it has an old panel, um, just from a safety standpoint, it depends, but I mean, you have to evaluate whether you might want to just replace it in general. Yeah. And that can get pretty expensive really quick, right? Like what does a electro panel like replacement typically run you guys? Um, just to swap it out about five grand. Yeah. That sounds about right. Um, lastly, you have dropped so many gems. I think this is going to help so many people, but some of the cosmetic stuff we always talk about is like painting and flooring. Do you guys just typically estimate based on the square footage? Uh, I've seen, I have properties in Scottsdale and I've seen it go for like $3 a square foot to paint, like seven or $8 a square foot for flooring. What are you guys typically seeing in the Atlanta market? Um, so if you're going with a uh, LVP product, LVP, yep. the most common, um, you know, rental grade, 
not the cheapest, but you're not spinning an arm and a leg and it's going to last a while. Um, you're looking around four ish dollars a square foot for material and labor. That is a steep discount from what I was paying. <laughs> hey, yeah, um, Uber, Atlanta prices. You guys better hit up Tyler right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about for painting then? Like that is that even less? Like two dollars a square foot then? What are you guys oh, running? Actually, uh, yeah, right around two dollars. Wow. I need to go buy more properties in Atlanta right away. <laughs> you can have all my savings. <laughs> there you go. I love it. Um, all right, Tyler, that was awesome. Blake, let's let's bring you into the conversation really quick. I would love to hear from you. We just talked with Tyler about all things renovations, but we didn't talk anything about furnishing. I'm really curious to hear from you. What are you seeing from a cost perspective on how much it would cost to furnish a pad split room on average? And what have you seen in terms of like top performing properties? Like what are people doing differently to be the sure. top performing pad split? Yeah. So really um, a question we get a lot is do, does a pad split come furnished? And the answer is sort of. So like in the kitchen, which I know is not what you asked me, you would, the host would provide things like the microwave and the refrigerator, but they don't provide things like pots and pans and plates and stuff. Similar logic applies in the bedroom. The idea is we want people to be able to move in with a suitcase or two. So the host is going to provide something like it's going to provide like the bed, the mattress and the mattress cover, but not the sheets. So all in, um, I think you can furnish the rooms for about $650. Um, and I kind of have on our website, we have like an items to buy link. I don't know, can I can maybe you can link it here or something. Um, and you can actually customize that list to the number of bedrooms and bathrooms you're going to have. Um, that list is pretty good. Um, there are a few things I would maybe do differently. Like, for example, the artwork on you do want to provide artwork in the room so that people feel welcome. But the artwork on our website is $63. Would I spend $63? Absolutely not. I'm going to Home Goods. I'm buying whatever is like in no way polarizing. Uh, or I'm looking on the Nextdoor app or the Facebook app for all the people that are selling the stuff out of their Airbnbs. So yeah, all in roughly around 650 bucks. You want to get a mattress, a mattress cover, but you don't need to go buy, you know, a Tempur-Pedic $2,000 mattress, but you also don't want to buy the cheapest thing ever because if it's not comfortable, you might have higher turnover and you want people to feel welcome in your home. Um, so I think in our initial days, we started out with like base bone, bare bones, clean, safe, and functional. So for example, when it comes to clothing storage, you just have to be able to unpack your stuff. So if it's a room that already had a closet, that's technically all that is required. However, a lot of people are probably going to have a work uniform or a suit, and then everyone's got socks and gym shorts. So I think it's better practice to have a space both for hanging and for, you know, shorts and T-shirts and stuff. Um, so in, in my opinion, if a room already has a closet, you can just get a dresser. If the room has been converted from a living room and it doesn't have a closet naturally, it doesn't have to for pad split. But when you're choosing that furnishings, I would get like an armoire or something where there's space for hanging and space for, you know, for socks and T-shirts. Can I have two Matterports that I can either share now or I can just send the links to um, and we can take a look. Yeah, send, okay. send me the link because I want to make sure I can uh, share that link with folks and people can kind of walk through it. And it, for these Matterports, just so I can communicate that to folks, are these like, are they both similar in terms of quality or, or is one no, is like I tried, less? I tried to pick one that's like meeting our basic requirements and then one that I Got feel it. like made it a little bit nicer. Okay, I'm sure people will be able to find out uh, and visualize it, but maybe for the listeners that are just listening, right? They can't, they're sure. not watching on YouTube. How, can you verbalize, like, just 
tell us like, hey, sure. what do you yes. see that the top performers are having? Is sure. it just simply amenities or is it designed at the core all the way through? Yeah. So I would say our most successful hosts only design, only put rooms on the platform that they would feel comfortable staying in themselves. So our minimum square footage requirement is 80 square feet, but no one really wants to live in an eight by 10 room. So sticking to a, you know, 10 by 10 or bigger is my suggestion. You know, if you, um, you want to have, you want to make it welcoming and don't want to feel like someone's living in a shoebox. So the ability to have a, a, a window to let in the natural light. I mean, you have to have a window to meet egress, but having a bigger window could be a great idea or something like when I see a garage or basement conversion, if the original door was just like solid wood, replacing that door with a window, you know, where the top half of the door is a window to allow in some natural light. Um, I think we all know what for, you know, oh, when you walk into a hotel and it feels like really nice wood furniture versus, you know, what you had in your college dorm. I mean, we've all probably had a range of comfort. Um, so it's just kind of striking that balance of still remembering we're serving, you know, we're here to do affordable housing. We want to have the investor make a profit. Um, but, you know, don't get like a half inch mattress, get a mattress that is comfortable enough for you to sleep in. Um, you know, some of our residents are six feet tall or maybe 250 pounds or something. So no one really wants to sleep on a twin size bed. So going with the full size bed is is much better than a twin size bed. Um, of course, there are guardrails. I think that full size is the best because it is single adults only. So I, I wouldn't recommend a larger bed. Um, but just thinking about kind of the experience. Um, some hosts put in headboards and footboards. I don't really feel like that is that important. But if you are going to have a headboard, definitely no fabric doing like all wood or all metal because you want to make sure you can sanitize things between people's different people's stays. Um, I've seen some homes where they just kind of have like an open clothing rack, um, which is better than no storage, no hanging space. But I don't, unless someone really likes their work uniform, they maybe don't want to look at it when they go to sleep. So again, <laughs> like an armoire that closes so you can have all your clothes, both your work uniform, the suit you got from your dad and all your, you know, socks and t-shirts kind of all put away, I think is, is nice. Um, if you're going to have a nightstand, I think spend a little bit more and get one with dra with drawers because people need places to store their items. Um, lamps are nice, especially um, if, you know, the overhead light is, you know, I don't know, not super. I saw, I just saw a house the other day and it's got one of those, like, what do you feel like you have in an office building, like a long tube light? And it's very, you know, it's all the way at the kind of one end. So having like another light can be nice. Um, when the rooms allow for it, the um, idea of putting in a desk and a chair, I like. Again, on the chair, you want to make sure it's metal or wood, no fabric. Um, but that way, if someone is like a part-time student, it's nice to have that. Or even just to prop up their computer to, you know, watch their Netflix. Um, because tying back to what you asked about earlier with the noise, I agree with everything Tyler said. We don't put TVs in the rooms, so it's not like you have seven TVs blaring at once to also, you'd also want to like use sound insulation to stop. I totally agree with what Tyler was saying. If someone is being noisy, um, they're going to be noisy whether the insulation is there or not. And we do have quiet hours, which is another way we control the noise. Got it, man. That was like gem after gem being dropped right <laughs> there. Um, so I think the auto listeners should be able to walk away with like some tactical things that you should be considering for your pad split right away or your future pad split if you don't have one. How, but before they even get to that step, they have to figure out like, hey, where should I buy a pad split, right, Blake? And let's, let's talk about that. What do you see are the qualities of a top performing area? And then maybe let's dive into Atlanta to use that as an example. But where should people think about investing in pad splits? What makes it a good sure. area or a good market? 
Yep. So our number one rule is no HOAs. We just strongly discourage HOAs because they can change their rules at any time. And regardless of what bylaws say or how active they might be, if, you know, Johnny doesn't like down the street, doesn't like it, it's going to create an uncomfortable experience for the residents, which we don't want you to have. Um, so number one rule, no HOAs. Um, there's a real um, balancing act between proximity to public transit and parking. The closer you are to public transit, the less number of parking spots you need to plan to have at your property. So if you had an eight bedroom home within a quarter mile of a MARTA bus stop, MARTA is the Atlanta transit system. Uh, so if you use that as an example, if you're within half a mile or a quarter of a mile, you're going to attract people that rely on that and also bring cars. So you can have, say, eight rooms who only allow for three cars because the other five people can use transit. If you're two miles from public transit, it doesn't mean you can't be successful. We have a lot of homes well outside the kind of perimeter of Atlanta that do well. They just either have less rooms or they have like parking behind the house or something to accommodate the extra number of cars. Because if you're, we found that if you're about a half a mile to a MARTA bus stop, about half the people will bring cars, half can use the transit. But anything above three quarters of a mile, I mean, it's really hot here. Uh, it's very hilly here. Anything above three quarters of a mile, pretty much everyone's going to need to bring a car. So just balancing the proximity to transit with parking and the number of bedrooms you have in your house is is really important to do. Um, Got it. So public transportation is very important. How about jobs? What, what does that look like for you, that's for a, you guys? That's, and what type of jobs and employers should we go after? Yeah, so that's super interesting. So our median income is $32,000. We have people working at, it's about 50% car ownership. It does vary by market. In Houston, Texas, for example, it's like 80% of our residents have cars. So it does, it is kind of market specific. But, um, you know, being, so $30,000, $32,000 median income, we have a lot of security guards, bus drivers, preschool teachers, people that work in like convenience stores. Um, so we also have a lot of like Amazon warehouse type things popping up further outside the city. So like I know someone that just did a pad split. Um, and as I was driving, like I always do, I pay attention to how close the closest MARTA is. And I was a little discouraged that the closest MARTA was 0.7 away until I also realized that if I kept going past the house, 0.9 in the other direction was an Amazon warehouse. So, you know, if you work at that Amazon facility making $14 an hour, you certainly can't afford the apartments that require an income of like $42,000. So, you know, being a mile from a distribution center isn't terrible because either maybe they can get a ride to work pretty easily or take a quick lift or whatever. Um, so in town is, is attractive, but as more and more warehouses and stuff like that pop up, there's a need there too. Got it. That's really interesting. And I think those, by you providing like very specifics about distance, I, that's really helpful for people to apply to their market analysis. Um, well, let's let's look at Atlanta. Where are the good pad split markets in Atlanta? Because that's you sometimes know, people hold it near, near and tight to themselves. But I know you're here just wanting to shower people with value. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, I mean, just first of all, whether you're working with me or one of my teammates, one of the things we love to do, one of my favorite things to do is run property analysis, portfolio analysis. So it's hard to kind of give like a blanket statement, but like some of the areas in Metro Atlanta that I really like are College Park, anything kind of in the Southwest quadrant of the city. We have a ton of success on the Northeast side in Gwinnett County, Stone Mountain, and then on the Southeast side, sorry, yeah, Southeast side Decatur also is very strong. I mean, truthfully, every time, like I just recently, maybe in March, I had a host at a property in a town called Palmetto. I had never heard of it, to be honest, but it's right off I-85 interstate. Um, and she has prices that are exceed 
that her average pricing exceeds the average price inside the city. It took her about three and a half weeks to fill up her house, which is longer than it would have taken somewhere else. But it's hard to know, is it because it was Palmetto or because she has her room pricing, you know, higher than what I would have maybe targeted myself, but it is filled. So, I mean, reality is if you have, if you have a Chick-fil-A, if you've got a hospital, if you've got, you know, there's people desperate, just, you know, how many people work at that hospital that make less than $42,000, probably hundreds of people. Yeah. And that, those are really, really important jobs that we need people to continue and we got to provide affordable housing to them. So that's really, really interesting. And thank you for sharing some of those areas, because now I'm sure people that might be listening might literally just go on Redfin or Zillow right now and start doing some searches. Yeah. And right now in Atlanta, we're seeing a median booking of four days uh, for. A wow. Room. So, you know, some areas are like one or two days, like kind of the southwest in town zip codes and then some are a little bit longer like maybe a jonesboro or riverdale is closer to seven or eight days but that's still mm -hmm. really good <laughs> you know yeah if you put a seven I'm bedroom really... house up three is going to cover your mortgage probably you get three but you know it's so it's it's the demand is very high yeah this is going to be really interesting because i'm i'm really interested in similar sentiment with airbnb they're like oh everything's saturated right how are you guys looking for saturation i mean with a four-day medium booking window like i don't see the saturation coming otherwise you wouldn't see that short of a booking window what are you what are you seeing with just tremendous amount of growth that you, you guys are working towards i think that's spot on so if we talk about atlanta metro atlanta specifically as of today we're at about 4400 bedrooms in metro atlanta we look at our total addressable market here is around 160,000 people and we're not just pulling that out of the air there's literally 160,000 single adults earning under forty thousand dollars in metro atlanta today so when we say that I'm really proud of the 4,400 that Tyler and I have watched us get. I mean, when I joined the company, we had like 300 rooms and we kept track of people on Google Sheets. So it's been, we had no product. So we've come a long way. So going from the 300 to the 4,500, I feel a lot of pride, but I also feel like we're not even scratching the surface. If there's 160,000 people that would benefit from our service and it's not like that number shrinking. Oh man, that is like just dumping facts on people that you can't even argue against that and maybe that we're getting to the part of the podcast where i want to ask you guys a few just like wild card questions because you guys are both so experienced in this space and i don't know tyler with your deep renovation experience right any sort of like gems or nuggets of wisdom that you can share with our audience right now like maybe we'll start with like hey when you look go into a property how are you looking at at a property so that you can teach some of the more novice or new investors out there how would someone with as much experience as tyler would look at a property for different opportunities yeah so um when i'm looking for properties first i cast a wide net so a lot of people want to ask, um, one of the first questions new passive buyers are want to ask is how, how much square feet do I need for a house to work? And like some of my previous answers, it depends. Um, first off, the square footage listed on the listing, I mean, it should be right, but it's not always right. Um, so you gotta dive into that. The build of the house itself is going to matter just as much as the square footage of the house. Um, a ranch house, a 1600 foot ranch house is going to traditionally be harder to find bedrooms to convert to a pass foot as a 1600 square foot split level house because it is built out a different, you know, it's built out a way that's layered so you can convert it better. Um, basements also, I mean, you have a house that might be listed as 1100 square feet that's sitting on a full unfinished basement. Well, 
that's really more like 2200 square feet you can play with. So I would say kind of looking for the needles in the haystack. I mean, it's a little tedious to look at every listing and make sure they have a square footage right. But um, getting an idea on the type of houses that really lend themselves to the passive model. In the Atlanta area specifically, you have a lot of split level houses, like I said, or houses on basements. Those are usually, you know, they lead themselves to being converted. You do have the converting garages, like we talked about. Um, we do that plenty. I would probably consider that my third favorite option of the first two of finding just a house that I can figure out first, like a split level, followed by a basement, followed by a garage. Just because I personally feel like you convert a garage, a two car garage into a living space, you might attract a little bit more attention from the neighborhood, from potential inspectors and things like that. Um, and then parking, you know, like Blake said, I consider that that's one of my highest priorities when I look for my personal ones is really putting a premium on houses that can have parking or are close to MARTA, ideally both. But, um, you know, you find ones that are on corners or close to MARTA have parking that wraps around the back of the house. So it's not such an eyesore if everybody does have to have cars. They're not all piled up in front of the house or in the street. You know, they can park discreetly behind the house. Um, the lot itself, you know, you, a lot of times, you know, people might find a house that is perfect, but it's on this tiny little lot, it's got a single car driveway, and it's not overly close to Marta, and it's like, well, that's probably not the best option. You're going to probably irritate some neighbors if you go that route. Um, so those are two things off the top of my head. And then also just from, like, the investor standpoint, I think partnering with people, at least if you're new to it, is the way to go, or at least unless you're really comfortable and risky. So I'm not saying it's risky, but you know, outlaying that much personal money feels a little different than outlaying half of it with a partner. Um, so in the first three I bought with my brother, um, you know, I have a buddy of mine that partnered with two other friends of ours. So all three of them went in on one, you know, like the example I gave earlier was two guys. Um, and then once you kind of have a feel for it, you, you get one up and running, get a few months on your belt. Okay. If you want to go buy one on your own, great. At least then you sort of spread the risk out a little bit on the front end um, when you're buying the house. Got it. So I love how you are looking at these priorities. They're almost like common sense ones, but sometimes you just got to remind people. It's like, hey, if you were living in a place, wouldn't you want your own parking spot? Wouldn't you want there to be better access to public transportation? It's just like some of these common sense stuff. Sometimes we, we forget and we have to remind it. Like, thank you for bringing those up. Um, how about when you're walking inside a property? Do you look for placements of HVAC vents or do you not really worry about the construction side? Because, I mean, you, you're much more experienced with construction. But I don't know. Do you look for anything that's like going to make things a cheaper conversion besides for the split level? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. Once you're looking at the house and you can figure out the layout. So the first thing I'll do if I'm looking at a house that's four pads specific, specifically, when I'm walking into the house, it means I have a number of bedrooms I'm trying to hit to make this math work. If I can't hit that number of bedrooms, then there's no point in me even evaluating the age of the HVAC or the roof and whatnot. If I can't get to that bed mm. count, then I'm walking back mm. out. So first things first, I walk through and you know figure out, okay, like I thought this was going to be a seven bed and, and it's going to be a six, I'm out. Or, you know, you just sort of figure it out. Um, with the amount of experience I have with them at this point, I mean, I, you send me a listing, I can pretty much boil it down to a one bedroom 
you know, I can look at it and go, okay, it's either going to be seven or eight. I know it's not nine or higher, and I know it's not six or less, but I'm going to have to look at it to know for sure. Um, and then from there, you're looking at general construction stuff. Um, one thing that I haven't brought up that is maybe the most important thing is plumbing. So a basic house with a family of four is going to have, you know, the plumbing wear and tear is going to be different than eight people living in the house. Um, so that's something to look very um, intently on the front end is what kind of plumbing do we have in the house? Really stress it out the best you can. See if it's a cast iron. If it's cast iron, okay, it might, it might be fine. It might be working for a while. I have, I mean, actually the first house I ever did had cast iron plumbing and it's still working fine. And, you know, I was being a little cheap on the front end, but then I had another house that had issues. And ever since then, if I see cast iron, I'm, I'm taking it out. Um, and everybody's got a different appetite when it comes to that kind of stuff. I mean, people, some people, you know, they're willing to roll the dice and others aren't. But when you have eight people living in a house and you have a massive plumbing leak, that's not good for anybody involved. So I would say that's very important. Um, then HVAC. And then, uh, and then you have the obvious things, obvious things, right? Like make sure the roof's not leaking and stuff like that. But um, if you have a basic maintenance stuff that's not going to infringe on somebody's like, quality of life living in a house, okay, like that's, that's a rental property. That's going to happen. You just can't have these big things is really going to be a strain on somebody living in the house like the plumbing failing or the ac crap now right now i mean it's 96 degrees outside right now so i would say stuff like that um is what you need to put a premium on and focus on to make sure you're you know crossing your t's and dying your eyes got it and i think we talked about plumbing what other mistakes do you think have you seen or you made personally uh, or seen other investors make personally um, during the renovation? Do you see people like over renovating? Just curious to hear like from your perspective, like what kind of mistakes do you see investors making uh, in this path split world? And Blake, I'll come to you after this because I want to hear from you on what, where you see from your perspective. Um, you know, I would say most of the common mistakes are people wanting to push things down the road or not want to spend that extra money on the front end, which I mean, I get it. Like we're, we're providing affordable housing, but we also need to make money. And, you know, if the budget's not there, the budget's not there. Um, for example, I had a guy, um, really nice guy, who renovated his house and whatnot, and um, it's an eight bed. I told him, hey, you probably want to get a second fridge. Eight people live in the house. It's going to be, it's going to be tight. So, okay, I'll, I'll decide later. Yeah, if they want a second fridge, we can throw one in there, which is true. And it's not like it's going to be a huge deal, right? Like, but without fail, two weeks into it, he's like, hey, can we, can we add a second fridge? We have a lot of people uh, complaining. I was like, yeah, we can do that. Um, so I'll say that's like a minor thing that you defer. And that was part of the reason he did it, right? It's not that big a deal. But the plumbing stuff and things like that, it's the most common mistake is really rolling the dice on these things. And it's a lot easier to deal with it when you're already renovating the house. It's empty. Nobody's living there. All good. Um, it's a lot more difficult when people are living in the house. Um, but yeah, I would say that because most of the common mistakes at this point, I've lived it or I've, you know, we've experienced it and we direct people away from it. Um, you know, the parking stuff, like what well, we were a lot more free flowing with that a few years ago until we realized, oh, actually, this might not be a great idea to have this many cars here. Um, so I would say working with your account executive like Blake at Passwith directly or if you have experienced contractors and agents who have done this and have seen the life cycle of it, they 
should be able to direct you and tell you the do's and don'ts when it comes to all this. Thank you so much, Tyler. Um, Blake, let's bring you on here. What mistakes have you seen other investors make? Because you have a purview of across the nation. So you must yeah. be talking to other account reps. Well, tell us some stories you know, about mistakes that people have made. Yeah. So I think the old adages apply like you can have there's fast, cheap and good and you can pick two of the three. I think it's more important to think long term. I think for a lot of people like this is a huge investment. When for some people, this is maybe the first or second or third real estate deal they've done. Um, so I sometimes see people wanting to maybe make decisions that are short-sighted. So like not doing things the right way, because like if you have a plumbing problem after everyone moves in, everyone's got to move out or everyone in the basement's got to move out. You got these expensive repairs and it's noisy for the people living upstairs. So I think either doing too little initially, but also doing too much. Um, like a lot of people that come with like an Airbnb perspective or maybe they're flippers, um, they want to go and spend money where you don't need to spend money. The reality is no one's choosing a pad split because of the kitchen. Um, and I know if you're renovating a house to flip it, kitchen, I watch a lot of HGTV. I hear that the kitchens in the master bath are what sell, uh, sell homes. That is not why people choose pad split. Um, a lot of people literally never cook or they only use like the microwave and the refrigerator. Mm. So I think overspending mm. too. Um, I heard, I once heard Tyler tell someone something that I thought was really insightful. He said that he almost prefers when a house is a gut job, because he doesn't have to make any hard decisions about what to renovate or what to not renovate. So like, if you have a kitchen from 1997 and it is functional, other than removing the dishwasher, I probably wouldn't touch it. You know, some people want to go spend that money replacing certain things or painting the cabinets. You're not going to get your money back for that. So balancing, making it a welcoming, clean space, but not overdoing it. Got it. So you're not seeing premiums for a nicer kitchen on pad split or, or any sort of correlations like that. That's no, great and, to and, know. And what Tyler said is right. Having a second refrigerator, people care a lot about that. Absolutely. And if you're going to have a really big house, like nine or 10 rooms, you should not only have that second refrigerator, but you should have a second space where you have that second refrigerator along with the second microwave and a second sink. Which, like, if you're renovating a house with a basement and there's already a kitchenette, like, that, it's kind of already built in that way. But, um, you know, thinking about the member experience, like, if six people are all trying to make their coffee at the same time, that's a little too crowded. Um, even though everyone does have different schedules and stuff, that's totally true. Um, but, like, they're not going to be like, oh, wow, look at this, like, beautiful, you know, count granite car countertop. I love the speckles of, of silver glitter in here. That's just not really where the headspace is. So don't spend the money. Got it. I love it. So don't worry about the backsplash. Spend the money on on a fridge instead. Well, since you and Tyler brought the fridge conversation, I actually thought about like, have you seen any hosts actually provide a personal mini fridge in each of their home before? Any so, sort of like extra menus like that? I have. So it's really interesting. Um, we the first time this ever came up was actually a resident asking if she could have a mini fridge in her room because she has a medicine that needs to stay refrigerated and she didn't want it in the common area, which is like, of course, absolutely, please do that. And I remember I looked it up at the time and it's something like a mini refrigerator was adding something like $34 a year in power usage. So like not meaningful numbers at all. So by all means in that situation, of course, um, I, I do have a couple of hosts that just wanna give everyone their own mini fridge and they still have one in the kitchen. So you can totally do that. Um, we don't want to encourage cooking in the room. You're definitely not allowed to have things like a cooktop or a space heater because those are dangerous. Um, but yeah, you could do it. Uh, we have something to do. 
awesome. I, I'm glad I wasn't the only crazy one thinking about that. I was like, we keep talking about fridges. I feel like we, everyone should just get their own uh, personal refrigerator or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so, you totally can. And I mean, uh, we even have, um, and we actually have like a, a Facebook group for Padsplit hosts. And this one host, our very first host, Heather, she uploaded this picture of what she does with her refrigerator our refrigerators she actually assigns different sections of the refrigerator this is room one section this is room two section so that everyone knows exactly where to put their stuff and then on top of that when someone moves out and the property manager goes to turn the room she knows exactly what she can throw away so you don't have like this moldy cheese situation in the back where you don't know who it belongs to and you know it seemed a little micromanagey at first when she did it but the more i think about it the more i like it because it really does help people know where to put their stuff and it helps the property manager know what can be tossed I absolutely love that. Um, well, this has been an awesome conversation. Let me bring Tyler back up here. Tyler, any sort of last advice that you would give to the listeners that are listening to this right now regarding Padsplit and their journey about investing into Padsplit? Um, you should buy one if you haven't already. Um, always, always tell people, whenever <laughs> our friends that are interested in it or new, um, new investors, always tell them that this is true. I want to fact check myself, but I think every person we've ever worked with that's bought one, it's always bought another one. So I say jump in. I say partner with somebody and uh, find a good good team. Get a contact with a passport, a good realtor, contractor, property manager, and run with it. Just like this team right here, guys. Um, <laughs> Blake, any sort of last words or advice that you want to give to our listeners today? Um. Thank you for listening. And also just there's, we love chatting with people. I love working with people that have been investing for years, but I also find it incredibly rewarding to start with first time investors. So don't be afraid to reach out. Even if you have no idea what you're doing, like I'm here to coach you and consult with you through the process. And, you know, if, if making a lot of money while also helping others is attractive to you, I've yet to see anything like pad split that can deliver both. That is amazing. And Blake, where can people get in touch with you? And Tyler, we're going to go to your next for your contact information. So Blake, B-L-A-K-E at padsplit.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Blake Lewis. I'm also on Instagram, 2XROI with Blake Lewis. And um, look forward to chatting with all of you. And then I know we've talked yeah. a lot about Atlanta. I just want to make the caveat that we also have general managers in every market we're in. So we have a lot of expertise. So um don't worry about, oh, Blake only knows Atlanta. We have really, we have a great team here. Make sure you follow Blake on Instagram because we're <laughs> working on her social media presence right now. <laughs> Tyler, how about yourself, man? What can people get in touch with you? Um, you can email me at tfloyd, F-L-O-Y-D, at mardonconstruction.com. Mardon spelled M-A-R-D as in dog, O-N. Um, you can shoot me a follow on Instagram if you want. It's tfloyd64. Um, not a lot of content on that page. You want to see me post every now and then with me and my fiance, you can check that out. But um, yeah, so I'll say email is probably the best. <laughs> I love it. Hey, it, this, first of all, uh, thank you both for what you guys do. Cause I grew up in affordable housing myself and without people like the both of you, I mean, I was born um, nine of us in a two bedroom apartment. So I think you guys are already creating a better condition than what, I was originally born into so i can't thank you guys enough without people like the both of you i would not be where i am today without people like you that cares about affordable housing that provides a safe clean sanitary uh, place to live so can't thank you guys enough and can't thank you guys enough for coming onto the show today 
and sharing all these gems, nuggets of wisdom. Um, seriously, really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you both back on, a, on the podcast at some point. Would love to. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kat. All right. Thank you. And we're out. <laughs>